Uh, One of the most practical books that I ever read is the classic relationship book called uh, The Five Love Languages. Many of you are probably familiar with that. You've either read it or heard about it or done a seminar or something like that. Uh, This book uh, Lisa and I read 25 years ago when we were married, and it was very, very helpful. The whole premise of the book is that each of us, you already know this, I'm sure, each of us has a certain way in which we prefer to receive love. And one of the issues is, ever how you prefer to receive love, you just assume everyone else in the world is just like you, right? Like, why wouldn't everybody else just want to be like me? I like to receive gifts, so I just assume everyone else wants to receive gifts. Well, what do you know? That was not Lisa's particular love language. And for me, as a early, early person inside of a marriage relationship, I had to learn, oh, Everyone else in the world is not like me. In fact, it's my job to learn how to love others the way they want to be loved. So now, this brings us to our study this morning. And rather than looking about marriage relationships or friendships or dating relationships, the question of the day is, how do people inside the church of Jesus Christ love each other? How do people inside the body of Christ serve one another in such a way that it's good for them and not good for ourselves? I think we're going to see a similar component to the faultiness of our own relationships. Just as we think we know how to love one another, God has something else in store for us. That inside the walls of TCPC and inside churches throughout the world, we are called to love one another where we take our eyes off of ourselves and our own needs and put them on everyone else for what is good for them. And what that looks like may not be what you have in mind. And what we're going to see this morning is that life in the spirit, as he produces love inside of us, that love is very unusual. It's very unnatural. And this passage is not one that we typically look at when we think of how to love each other, but that's exactly what this is about. Now, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, As I've been going through this book over the last few weeks or so, we've seen that this is a new church where these believers have legit been converted. They are growing in the word and they are being afflicted by the issues of the day by Christ. And Paul celebrates that there is a good work going on inside of them. They really are followers of Jesus Christ. And now here in chapter four, we see attributes of these people that are true of them because God's spirit is inside all of them. So that is churches all over the world for the past 2,000 years. Similar things are going to be true of each person who follows Christ. This is what is meant to be ordinary. This is what is meant to be common. If you're a Christian, if God's spirit lives inside of you, this is what is happening. And second part here that we're going to see of chapter 4 is all about brotherly love. And as we gather this morning here at TCPC, and for those filled with God's Spirit, I pray that this will be true of us. All right, two points this morning I want to make. That loving others inside the church is reflected by, one, a growing independence, and two, a growing dependence. A growing independence and a growing dependence. And we're going to see how we love each other and why we love each other. So first, how we do this, this growing independence. Look back at verses 9 through 11. I think these words are so fascinating because this just doesn't look and feel like love. It's almost like an oxymoron. 
But it really is what Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is teaching us this morning. Again, we see that Paul is very pleased with the way that this young church is growing. They're doing good stuff. He commends them to continue to keep doing the same things that they have been doing. Paul is not upset. In fact, he's very happy. Sometimes Paul's mad. This is not one of those. But where he says to continue to grow in brotherly love, what he is saying is, take your eyes off yourself and look at everyone else inside the church and think what is best for them. And it appears that there is something going on inside of their hearts that has caused them to be distracted. If you read through the rest of uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians in the next section and then in chapter 5, you see what the issue of the day is. And it's a good one. These people are radically concerned about the return of Jesus Christ. And that's all they're talking about. They think Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And maybe he was. I'm sorry, maybe he is. He hasn't come back yet. Yet, they were so focused on that that it was becoming a distraction for their ordinary life. Their heightened spiritual sense of the imminent return of Christ caused them to no longer take personal responsibility for their common, ordinary, routine responsibilities in life. It seems as if they were lazy in the stewardship of their personal responsibility And it was creating an issue inside the church. And Paul is saying, I urge you more and more to press on into this love. You see, our devotion to Christ and our longing for him to return is not to take away from us being good citizens here in Lexington. Us being good citizens of humanity. No, we have responsibilities to do as we wait for the return of Christ. So to truly love each other. We are to be empowered by God's spirit to do all of those things which God has called us to do. We're going to see this growing independence. Paul uses three different phrases here to express what this looks like. So if you're following along there, let's look at this first one. Paul says to aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. That does not seem like loving other people inside the church. But in fact, that's exactly what it is. What does it mean to live quietly? Well, you need to know that this is not paradise for introverts. I wish that's what that were about, but that's not what the Lord is saying here at all. This does not mean that we aren't supposed to talk to each other when we come to church. It does not mean that we're supposed to just have a restful, peaceful afternoon every single day. No, that's not what a quiet life is in this regard. No, to live quietly under the power of the Holy Spirit is the idea that our lives and our souls are to be calm as we wait for Christ to do everything that Christ said he was going to do. To live quietly is to be confident that Jesus Christ is in control of your life and he is doing exactly which he promised. It means that in our relationships with each other, That our manner is such that we are so in love with and confident in Christ that we do not affect each other in a negative way. Particularly this teaching is that to love the people of God is we are not to get them riled up about whatever it is that we care about on a level more than is what is necessary. Again, for Paul's original audience here, It appears that they were so fired up about the return of Christ that their zeal for Christ's return was making them so restless 
that they were becoming a distraction to the other followers of Jesus. They kept firing up everyone else that their devotion to a good thing prevented their friends from completing their common daily task. In a sense, they were driving each other nuts. That's not loving your neighbor. Paul's point here is that followers of Jesus have a calmness in our inner being that Jesus will absolutely fulfill all of his promises. You know, what might this look like in our day or even here at TCPC? You know, we have issues that we love, issues that we care about, issues that we talk about. You know, one, we love to talk about reformed theology or predestination or end times or evangelism or financial principles. It's one thing to love these very important weighty matters, but that's different than those things becoming your label where you're identified with this and not Christ. You see, when we are in love with him and trust him, we can calmly not fire up everybody else about our own particular passion. That's what Paul is saying. You know, in my study of this passage this week, I found this really comical, even though it's not funny. This verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, is cited in the Westminster Larger Catechism as a reference for an explanation of the Ten Commandments of do not murder, do not kill. This verse is used, meaning you can kill people by driving them crazy about being passionate about things that you should not be as passionate about. That's what this is about. See, you can amen this if you would like. It's not loving to annoy your brothers and sisters in Christ. (laughs) That's what Paul is saying. It's selfish. So for you this morning, maybe it is a doctrinal issue. Maybe it's a political issue. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's a relational issue. But is that what you're known for? Or is your heart, is your soul calm in the reality of, no, I'm known for my devotion to Christ and his power in my life. Whatever the subject may be, do you believe in your soul? That Jesus is fulfilling his work. If so, then you certainly share with your church family your burdens. You let them pray. You let them help. You let them serve. You let them be involved. But may our souls know that God is at work. Second phrase that Paul uses here. Also, it's kind of the other side of the same coin. Is uh, to mind your own affairs. Or some translations would simply say... Mind your own business. And this deals with the exact same issue of meddling in the lives of other people about things that you care deeply about. The nature of the problem for Paul is that he was addressing does not appear to be that people could not find employment. This was not an economic issue. It was not an issue if people didn't have enough resources. What seemed to be the case was that these people were so preoccupied with whatever issue had fired them up that they were now taking their passions to everyone that they could find and talking about these things. It was as if they had become evangelistic about issues that they cared about in such a way that it was distracting for everyone else. So just as it was not loving to be boisterous about your opinions, about your passions, then it's also not loving to go on a crusade about those same things. And Paul says here that people had become busy bodies Going from friend to friend, from home to home, from meeting to meeting, 
from church to church, from denomination to denomination, interrupting the daily work of others so that their passions could be heard. And Paul's point is that that was and that this is nothing more than selfishness, a consumption upon yourself which bleeds over into the lives of your friends. Minding your own affairs means that you love each other enough not to get in their way as they are fulfilling the callings that God has given them in their life. All based on a desire to enable other people to fulfill whatever it is that God had called them to do. For example, here at TCPC, imagine a Tuesday afternoon here in the office. Hypothetically, Robert might be in his office writing a sermon, studying the scriptures, hearing from the Lord, meditating, using the prophetic gifts and calling that God has given him. Maybe writing an article for the Herald Leader. Maybe writing for KSR about an issue of the day that really can affect our lives. So just picture that in mind. Robert studiously in his office studying. And what if I continued to interrupt him throughout the day? Asking him if he had seen the latest tweet about the UK football recruit. Asking him if he had seen the latest tweet about Donald Trump. Whatever the issue may be. You see, if I were to do that... I would distract him. And Paul's point here is that's not how you love each other. If I were to do that, that would be taking him away from what he was supposed to be doing and forcing him to think about what I want to talk about. Now, I use myself for that example because, of course, Michael Scott, I'm I'm sorry, Robert Cunningham would never do anything like that at all. Uh, Never. Only I would do something like that. But you see... Holy Spirit-led people love one another in such a way that we care for each other and we enable them to fulfill their calling. You know, as I pondered this this week, I think one of the issues for me that I sense in my own life and I see in people around us is that when we are dealing with things that are less than what we should be focused on, the problem is that those things can be addictive and we can enjoy them and we can dwell on them. And when we do, our souls are then distracted and we are no longer loving each other. We're no longer dialed into what God has called us to do, but rather we have moved on and affected other people. So see this morning, if we're gonna love each other well, we're gonna live in the peace of Christ's power. We're going to love each other well. We're going to live in the peace of the calling he has for us. But then also, last phrase here, verse 11. Paul says, to work with your own hands. I love this. To work with your own hands. And scholars are not entirely sure of the issue in this city. But what is clear, as John Stott says about this passage, that the idle were unwilling to work, not unable to work. Again, this is not an economic issue going on. This is an issue of people were so distracted about their individual passions that they were no longer taking responsibility for their own lives. The situation was that there was able-bodied people who had come into the church. And what they saw were generous people throughout the church. So rather than them going to work and fulfilling the calling on their life, they lived off the generosity of others. 
And that is a theme inside the New Testament churches that we are in fact to care for one another. But what Paul is saying is not at the expense of going to work and fulfilling your calling. See this morning that Paul's writing here to a city where most of the vocational callings involve manual labor. His point for us today is to see the extreme value in whatever it is that your hands can do. Whatever skill that you have, whatever you have that brings value to this world, whatever God has ordained and equipped you to do, it is loving to everyone else for you to do it. When you produce whatever skill God has given you that ability to take care of your home, to raise kids, to engineer, to bake, to clean, to preach, to invest, to teach, when you do those things, That is an act of love for everyone else. Again, this is an unusual love. That doesn't seem like how we typically love each other, but that is what Scripture is saying. When you fulfill your personal responsibilities, you're loving your brothers and sisters in Christ because you're no longer meddling in the affairs of others. You demonstrate love for each other. By doing what God made you to do. You see, we live calmly knowing what Christ is doing. We mind our own business as we do that. And then we produce whatever skill and craft the Lord has given us to do. These aren't just good ideas. These are directives of God to us, to his people. And this is for our good. What we see throughout scripture is that we will never enjoy who we are in Christ if we are not doing what he has given us the ability to do. You see, love is revealed by growing independence. It's not that we're self-sufficient people. It's not that. But it is that we fulfill our callings. Now, why do we love like this? Notice this growing dependence, point two. Look at verse 12. Again, this is not just good practical advice, but there's more going on than what we realize when we fulfill our calling. Paul says that we are called to walk properly before outsiders. And what he means is when you take this gospel of Jesus Christ to your neighborhoods, to the world, you are not to discredit the person of Jesus Christ in your life. Paul understood. He personally had an occupation. He was a tent maker. That's what he did. And when he did this craft that his hands could do, he had ample opportunities to speak with suppliers, with customers, competitors, to co-workers. And no doubt he shared his faith with them along the way. So when Paul talked about the person of Christ, of his life, of his death, of his taking our sin away, of his resurrection, and of his coming someday again, his life bore credibility to the message. All that we treasure is made manifest when the fact is God's spirit leads us to take our lives seriously. What would make Paul's declaration very unappealing would be if these followers of the risen Christ actually did not trust Jesus with all that he has given to them. If they really didn't experience his power, if they really did not experience a changed life, that would not be loving. 
It would be awful for someone to say that they wanted to know more about Christ and then recognize that Christ's followers had no difference in their life whatsoever. You see, being dependent on no one in this context means that you're now fully dependent upon Christ for everything. It means that your life is now real because the Spirit of God is inside of you. When we depend on Christ, He provides our daily bread. And then we give Him all credit for that. Every single thing that we have, He has given to us, including our responsibilities. Again, we are not self-sufficient people. That's not what this passage or the entire Bible ever speaks of. Rather, we take seriously our lives as followers of our great King and the power of His Spirit inside of us. When you and I fulfill our callings with His Spirit, we honor Christ. And when we do that, we give credibility to His message. You know, earlier this year, TCPC OSIT hosted our annual Good of the Bluegrass conference. And last year when Russ Whitfield spoke, he equipped us, he motivated us to go outside these walls and to love people, to love our neighbors, the local businesses, our friends. You know what would be awful? What would discredit this message completely? Would be that in our love of our neighbors, if they actually were intrigued by the gospel, if they actually came through these walls and sat here in these pews, and then they realized that the people inside of here didn't love each other. That would discredit everything. And what Paul is saying here through the power of the Spirit, the unity that we have together when we live in repentance with each other, that draws people in. I can't think of anything more depressing or more sad than for people to come into this congregation and find a place that is not loving. May the world see that Jesus is here, that he's living, that he's active, that he's redeeming, that he's shaping us and our lives exist for the good of the entire world. May that be real. So I pray this morning that we'll all see love is not whatever we want it to be. Love is what Jesus says it is. And we see that love demonstrated in his life. Again, you think about this passage and you realize Jesus fulfilled his calling. Jesus completed the task that his father had given to him. Jesus went quietly to the cross. Jesus single-mindedly completed the task assigned to him to bear our wrath. And with his outstretched hands, his work was complete. That our salvation will forever exist because of the work that he has done. You see, his love for us is an unusual love. Our love for each other is an unusual love. As we trust him, our dependence on him grows. And we bear witness to the reality that he is alive. So now as we prepare to come to his table this morning, I ask you to prepare your hearts to feast with this king who loves you greatly. Let's pray now. Lord, you love us beyond what we can understand, beyond what we can hope for, beyond what we can measure, and your love for us is secure. Your love for us is unlike anything we could have ever, ever dreamt, and yet you have done this for your good, for your glory, 
and we give you praise. So now, Lord, as we prepare to come around this table, prepare us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.